Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. We have talked on the program before about A-B testing mm -hmm. and also having worked at Facebook, which does a lot of A-B testing, and now working at Netflix, which does a lot of A-B testing, it kind of got me curious about, I guess, how these big companies do this much testing and what's involved with uh, A-B testing at scale. Great question. And lucky for both of us and for all of you, Airbnb has a really good series of posts that talk through how they think about this. And so let's hop into it. All right. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So I got to say, I haven't had the best experience with Airbnb's customer support in my travels, oh. but I will say that their tech and engineering blogs and their um, presence in the open source space is really fantastic. Uh, yeah, plus one. I mean, this is coming from their, uh, the, the articles I was reading are from their Medium blog, and then some of the tools that will we might mention today are open sourced for your enjoyment. Yeah, it's really neat. I mean, you would expect someone like Facebook or a Netflix or a Google to have really great engineering blogs, but Airbnb? Well, I mean, they're a tech company. I'm, um, I'm impressed. I'm very happy about this. Well, so, and let's talk about why that is a little bit, I mean, one of the, one of the many reasons, right? Bit of background here. I think probably most of our listeners are familiar with Airbnb, but it's basically a website where you can um, book uh, somebody's house or spare room or... Uh, apartment or whatever as kind of like a hotel room when you're out of town. And so when you're traveling somewhere, you'll go on the Airbnb website. And generally, I, I was just in an Airbnb this weekend. I was traveling to visit my sister. Uh, so what I'll usually do is go in, I'll look at the dates and the area where I want to stay. I'll search around, look at a few different options, different, you know, amenities, locations, price points, that kind of thing get in touch with the people whose houses I want to stay in. They usually get back to me in a day or two and say, sure. Or occasionally they'll say, sorry, we can't accommodate you. And then I book a, I book that room. And so you can imagine that all of these steps in this pipeline process, they have different, there's different layouts that you could have to all of that. There's different options, mm -hmm. ways that you could present the information. There's different nudges that you could be giving me or the hosts along the way. And all of those provide good fodder for experiments so that you That's can... That's interesting. Yeah. So you can uh, make sure that the, like the pipeline is as optimized as possible. So I guess there are kind of two pieces there. Uh, one is that if you think about it from the customer's perspective, it's basically it's basically like the experience of booking a hotel room, except instead of all the hotel rooms looking the same and being in the same location, you know they're distributed and they're all different. Uh, so on the face of it, it almost seems like Airbnb is much like a hotel booking website, like Marriott, where they have a bunch of different properties. Um, but when you really dig into it, it's actually far more complicated than that, and you need to have um, user-facing UI and product that's not just facing the people booking, but also the people who are uh, renting out their their property. And then that's just the vanilla version of Airbnb. But once you get into trying to modify customer behavior by analyzing the way people use things and you know providing nudges here and there, then it gets even more complicated than that. So even though on the face of it, from a from a um, 
I guess, a consumer perspective, it seems like uh, almost like booking a hotel room, but you have more variety. It's actually a completely different animal. Well, but I, and I also think, though, that even the complexity of having a well-designed website to book a hotel room. Like, let me tell you, I was trying to book some hotel rooms for <laughs> other travel yeah. recently for another reason. And, you know, I was on the, the Marriott website. I was on the Hyatt website. You were like all of, they have all these little like sub hotel brands. So, you know, it's like, who knows which company some of these websites roll up to. Some of them are fine and lovely and some of them are a huge hassle. So even, even if it were just a hotel website, I'm using, you know, kind of air quotes here, like there's still a lot of complexity and there's still a lot of ways that, um, you can have a better or a worse user experience. And so I think that, that that's true of like anyone who's working on a product or a company that has a website where inherently there's lots of different choices that you have about what information what information to present, how to present it, what you want the user flow through the website to be, and all of those can have implications for kind of the ultimate success of what it is you're trying to do, which is usually like get people all the way to the end to convert to buy something from you or to come back a second time or to subscribe or whatever whatever the metrics are that you care about. So there are a lot of opportunities in any website like this, but we'll talk about Airbnb. A lot of opportunities for you to be tweaking changes and trying out different ideas or hypotheses that you have about product features or about new layouts or workflows, new visualizations. And so A-B tests are kind of the classic way that you try those out and see if your customers are responding to them in a way that generally drives up the metrics that you care about. Right. So we've covered A-B tests before, but the, I guess the summary is in a basic A-B test, you split up your users into two groups. You do it uh, randomly and you present one treatment or one user interface or one, uh, you know, something to group A and you present a different one to group B. One of them is your control, one of them is the thing that you're testing out. And then you see, you know, do your does your A group respond better or does your B group respond better? And of course, uh, your different metrics could move in different directions and so then you have to decide, okay, which metrics are most important and how do I judge success? Yep. Yeah, so let's talk through a specific example of this because there are some subtleties in there that I think are really interesting and the general as just a little bit of general scene setting here, we're going to walk through a specific example of trying to change around how the the layout of the search page works. But keep in mind that this is just one experiment and there might be hundreds or even thousands that are running at a time. So a lot of the challenge here is not doing this just one time, but setting up a system whereby this can be done by many, many people across the organization according to pretty unambiguous scientific best practices and all of this kind of stuff. Maybe we'll come back to that a little bit at the end, but let's get into an example. So uh, this is an example that I'm taking from one of the blog posts. All of these blog posts, there's um, four of them. We will have links on lineardigressions.com. They're all excellent. So let's say that they're changing around uh, the layout of the search page. So this is when I'm going in, I'm looking for a place to stay when I'm visiting my sister. And they had this layout before that had kind of a small map where I could see all of the properties like and where they were located. 
there was a little thumbnail picture for each property. There was a fair amount of white space. The price was very prominently listed. Changing around from that initial layout to one where the map is much bigger, the thumbnails are much bigger, there's kind of a grid layout instead of a list layout, the prices are a little bit smaller, and which of these two things is better? That's the question. Which of these two layouts is better? So if you pose that question to me, I mean, I, I don't know. I have my opinion. But the interesting thing about testing, about things like UI and user experience, is if you have two things that are both justifiably good, it's actually really difficult to predict what your customer or consumer is going to do because everyone has their own story in their head of who the um, canonical user is, right? And so uh, nobody can really predict exactly how the user base as a whole is going to respond. And that's actually why we have A-B tests and why they're so important is because uh, with A-B tests, you can get clear data about what actually happens rather than hypothesizing or guessing. Moreover, if you do the, the randomization properly between group A and group B, you can say that things that change are changing because of that change you made mm. or that feature that you added. Um, so, okay, so let's take this example. Now, I've, I have this hypothesis that there's an improved search page here. And so the first question, um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of questions that I have to ask here, is um, we kind of have danced around it a little bit, but what's the metric that I'm using to define whether this is successful or not? One metric that makes some sense is, well, if I, this is the first stage in the process of booking a room, this is the search stage. So, so maybe I say that my metric is some kind of engagement with the search page and then a person clicking on more results is, that's a good thing if that metric goes up with the new search page relative to the old one. But if I look at it another way, maybe someone is clicking on a bunch of things because they're not finding something that they like. There's information right. that's buried somewhere. So, and you know, I, if I'm Airbnb corporate, I mean, I'm sure I'm happy if people are in there searching a lot, but what I actually want is for them to be booking a room. And so maybe, uh, there's even a, a very counterproductive and pathological case where maybe there's something about my new search page that really turns off my most dedicated and, and most loyal customers or the people who have want to book like the fanciest, nicest apartments that I get the most money from. So in those cases, if I'm, what I'm doing is I'm just looking at the overall kind of engagement metric on the search page, but there's this downstream effect that it has on I mean, yeah, but in the process of running this experiment, I chase away the people who are actually going to book. Well, that's not very good. So the point of this is that number one, the metric that you pick is extremely important and sometimes a little bit subtle. And so what often it sounds like people want to do is have multiple metrics for each test and they want to see how um, a whole portfolio of metrics is changing. So I might have something like how many times did people click through and I also want to look at the downstream conversion rate to make sure that that isn't dropping off. Maybe there's a bunch of other different hypotheses about other things that can happen along the way. So now I have a test that's got multiple different metrics that are assigned to it and I want to have my infrastructure set up such that I can monitor all of those different metrics in a very automated way and with probably some 
a minimal amount of overhead on my part. I just say something like, hey, here's, here's an agreed upon metric that says something like final conversion rate. I just want to grab that metric according to maybe definitions that have already existed before I came in. And I want to plug it into my experiment and I want to go. Right. Okay. So you use all that to figure out what your, I guess you go through that exercise and figure out what your metric you care about is what's after that. Um, okay. So I have, I'm looking at, you know, now all of the different points along the pipeline. I want to be monitoring perhaps, you know, not just what happens at this stage that I'm changing, but things that happen downstage of it. Um, I want to be looking at the event level, like what actually ends up happening with this person trying to book this night at this hotel or at this uh, apartment. And I also want to be looking at my user uh, metrics. So that's making sure, for example, that I'm not turning off users who are my most loyal ones. And then there's a little bit of interesting footwork and definition that I have to do around what it means for what the treatment means. So in this case, treatment means like the, you see the new search page. But here, let me ask you a question. If you are the person who is designing this experiment, do you think that a person, that the, the treatment should be assigned on the person level? So once I, as a user, get sorted into either new search page or old search page, that I always see that same search page for the whole rest of the time the experiment is running? Or do you think it should be on the event level which means that mm. it's possible that I log in today and I see new search page, but then tomorrow that gets wiped away and maybe I'm searching for accommodations for some, some other trip and I could see the different search page from what I saw yesterday. What do you think? Yeah, that's, uh, that's so I think definitely as a user, I would prefer to feel like the service I'm using has some degree of stability to it, right? So it should probably be on the on the person level, per person level, rather than the event level. And actually, I'll go a step further and say that that stability of a product is something that is really hard to get right uh, with individual A-B tests. Like, it's not really represented there because the user is not just using your product during the period of an A-B test, they're going to get really fed up if they get, keep, uh, keep getting put into, say, these UI tests where different portions of the site are changing all the time because Airbnb is running a bunch of experiments. They're probably going to just get fed up and feel like they don't know how to use the site, um, especially if they're not used to apps and services changing all the time. And so as a result, you can have this almost evaporation of, of users over time that none of your A-B tests really um, represents and in fact is not even attributable to any of your individual A-B tests, but just the lack of um, perceived stability that the, um, that the product has. Yeah, exactly. So if you're changing around every time I log into your site, I'm seeing something that looks totally different and I'm not expecting that, like major layout changes then that's actually, yeah, that's going to be really, uh, you know, that's going to be pretty off-putting for me. On the other hand, with other, with, you know, certain platforms that are built really fundamentally around A-B testing, they do it in a way that it feels a little bit less, 
disruptive. So I think Netflix is actually a pretty good example here because I'm used to seeing those carousels and I'm, I'm not expecting them to happen in any particular order. The movies or the shows that show in, I'm used, I'm not expecting those to show up in any particular order, but I know that that's a lot of what Netflix is AB testing on me is what are the recommendations that is serving to me, but it, you know, the, the general layout and the general performance of the site is something that you can, you can tell that Netflix has, is keeping that framework constant yeah. While still allowing themselves a lot of experimentation flexibility within the framework. Yeah. So I guess you would have more leeway going back to the map example. If uh, you've got the Airbnb map and let's say you're zoomed way out, it's not going to show you 3,000 uh, recommended places all on one map. They're going to kind of pare it down and they're going to have to choose from this very long list of properties which ones they show you. That algorithm that decides what to show a user um, when they're zoomed further back, that could be tweaked and no individual user would be able to detect it, right? Um, now, if you were a user who obsessively tried to like reverse engineer the site or something like that and you kept uh, opening up the same search over and over again and tracking the results, then you might be able to tell with it whether you're in an experiment or not. But UI changes are a lot harder to run experiments on, especially if you have a lot of them that you want to test out. Yep. So what are some more things that uh, potentially need to be tracked? So we have all of those different definitions of metrics. We have to figure out what is our unit of analysis. Is it the event or is it the person? As an aside, yeah, sometimes at the event level, that makes a ton of sense. And then usually the way that these results are presented to like a data scientist is in the form of a p-value that gets tracked through time. So p-value is a statistical concept. It's basically a calculation, a number that gets calculated as your experiment is chugging along that says here is based on the amount of difference that we see between these two groups and the amount of people that we have put through our experiment so far, here is our confidence of whether A and B are showing statistically significant differences from each other. Like basically, is there an effect or not? Can we tell that there's, that there's some difference? Because a lot of times A and B, like, you know, the button is blue or the button is a slightly different shade of blue. Mm. It's not going to make a huge difference, but, uh, we, you know, we're usually starting these tests with the hypothesis that it could make a difference. So we want to be watching, watching kind of that statistical, measure as the experiment is going on. And that will tell us um, over time how close we are to having an answer and what we think that answer probably will be about whether this makes a difference and, and which way it makes a difference. Right. And you hear terms thrown around like P95 or P99, which is the certainty, the closer you get to one or 100, I guess, depending on how it's, how it's phrased, um, the more certain you are. Uh, yeah, I mean the, the nerdy definition. So usually smaller P values are the ones that are taken to be statistically significant. So P value Uh of, yeah, but it's just, you know, it's just one minus. Yeah, you're fine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but it's, it's the same idea. Um, yeah. And so P value of 0.05 is probably the single most common one. And that means that there's a, um, if there were no difference between the two different groups that we would see just because of random statistical fluctuations, we would see a difference of the size that we are seeing between them right now. Uh, a, a difference of that size or larger, 
uh, no more than 5% of the time. So, right. yeah. So it's, it's saying basically if P value is 5% or 1% or one half of 1%, then it's saying like the chances of this being due to the differences we see, the chances of that being due to just random fluctuations are, are very small. And right, so right, right. they're probably not random. They're probably because there's actually something going on. And there's a thing that you have to be very careful about here that I want to add as an aside. And this is actually an important part of, this is one of those things that's easy to get wrong. And so if you want to have a, an AB testing or an experimentation framework that many, many people are using, like these are the sorts of guardrails that you need to have in because it's something that the statisticians are comfortable with, but maybe not everybody who isn't a statistician has thought about this. But um, the question is, when do you stop your experiment? Um, so if right. I, if I just wait until I see a P value that's smaller than 0.05, there's actually a very good chance that I'm going to end up with a lot of biased results. I'm going to end up seeing a lot of false positives. Okay. Wait. So, so why? Because I guess naively, <laughs> I would think if I run an experiment and then I get a P value of let's say 0.04 and my threshold is 0.05 then i'm gonna say okay well then that was a success right mm -hmm. um where could that go wrong well so one thing that i should add just as at the upfront is let's say i'm looking at experiments with a p-value of 0.04 or less and let's say i ran a thousand experiments definitionally just by random mm -hmm. chance if nothing is going on I will still have 40 results or thereabouts. 40 uh, false positives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So right. I need to be a little careful about that. Does that mean that you don't want to run a whole bunch of the same experiment or very, very similar experiments? Um, you can, but you need to be careful that you're what this is called as um, multiple hypothesis testing. And there's corrections that you need to apply that say basically, okay, if I'm giving myself many chances to... Uh, see a positive result, then each time I see a positive result, I need to correct it back back down the significance by some amount um, that basically accounts for the fact that I might have just gotten lucky or unlucky here, depending on it. Right. So you're testing a bunch of different possible colors of, of <laughs> the funny, the, the Google example, uh, fabled Google example of trying a bunch of different possible colors of blue, different shades of blue that could if you're trying 10 shades of blue that could make you 10 times more likely to get a false, a false positive yeah so i mean an, a not terrible way of dealing with this is accept that that's going to happen to a certain extent because it's it's inevitable um but say that for things that we need to be really certain about or things that are intriguing and counterintuitive number one we should dig into the data uh, a lot more before we say that we really understand the outcome of this experiment and try to understand like if there are certain subgroups that are driving it or what's going on there. Um, and if it's something that's really important, then running a follow-up test, a second one on a completely different data set, like we're going to run this test again next month and we're not going to include any of the data from this month. And if, if the effect is real, then we will presumably see it again. Um, but in that case, we're not taking this spray and pray approach where we're testing this hypothesis and a hundred others. Instead, we say, no, this is just, this one is the only one that we're going to look at. 
and then you don't have the multiple hypothesis testing where there's lots of chances for it to find a false positive. But I think there's there's also a going back to the initial question, like let's say I'm just sitting there and I'm waiting for my p-value to fluctuate below 0.05. There's a different and subtler thing, which is that if I stop the experiment once it reaches statistical significance, like the threshold of 0.05, then I will end up with a bias because the p-value itself is going to be fluctuating around a little bit up and down, even if it's even as it converges on its true value, which sometimes it takes a while to do. Like sometimes it will fluctuate pretty wildly at the beginning of an experiment because the people who are interacting with a with a brand new feature sometimes look a little bit different than the people who interact with features when they're weeks old. Let me give a bit of an analogy. Let's say that I want to go on a diet and I want to lose five pounds and I've decided that I'm, I'm going to go on this diet until I lose five pounds. And then as soon as I hit the five pound mark, I'm going off my diet. And so I start like weighing myself, let's say a couple times a day. And I notice that because of eating and sleeping and sweating and all these kinds of things, like my weight tends to wiggle around by like, let's say a pound or two at any given point, it could be up a little bit or down a little bit. Make sense so far? Right. Cool. Okay, so I have this baseline that I've established, but I know it's a little bit, it's just inherently a little bit wiggly. And so then I start not drinking Coke or whatever. And I'm continuing to weigh myself and I see my weight is creeping down a little bit. And then at some point, maybe I lose a couple a couple pounds from like actually dieting, but I'm also going to be on sort of an hour by hour basis. I could be down, let's say a pound because I just woke up and haven't eaten anything yet. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's suppose that I take a measurement and I realize, Hey, I started out at weight X and now I'm at weight X minus five pounds. And it's the first thing in the morning. And I was a little bit sick yesterday, so I didn't eat a very big dinner. And I also have been on my diet for two weeks. And so maybe I was already down a couple points and it's really hot. So I've sweat a lot and I have uh, hit the five pound mark. Like, does done. that mean that I'm done? <laughs> ah, right. I see. So if you stop any moment, your weight or P value loses five pounds. <laughs> it's not then, a great analogy. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, the, the idea is there, right? Um, because your P value is going to be fluctuating around uh, if it's fluctuating by plus or minus two or three or something like that, then you might actually have a p-value of 0.08, but with the fluctuation, it appears for just that moment to be 0.05. And so you end up stopping your experiment pretty regularly a little bit short because of the wiggliness of your p-value. Yeah, and that I may have even, especially in the case of p-values, it's... Um, you know, the p-value, sometimes it's going to fluctuate up a little bit. Sometimes it's going to fluctuate down a little bit. In general, I expect it to fluctuate up about as much as it fluctuates down. But almost by definition, if I'm just looking for it to dip below a certain value, I'm never going to see that happen when it's fluctuating up or very, very rarely, right? Because then the fluctuation up is working in the opposite direction of when I'm making my decision. 
so I'm very frequently, if I stop right when I hit that P equals 0.05 threshold, going to catch it when it's on a fluctuation down, which mm-hmm. means that I'm going to be biasing myself towards stopping too early and, and in particular convincing myself that there's a larger effect size than there actually is, which is not great. I see. That seems uh, tricky and insidious. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's actually pretty straightforward to deal with. Uh, what you do is you say, here's an estimate of the effect size that I expect to see, or here's the effect size that the minimum effect size I would need to see in order for this experiment to be meaningful. Like if there isn't a difference that's more than a half a percent between the two groups, then I don't care. Like that's an example. And here's the number of experiments that we're going to be able to run through this. Here's the number of people who use this feature every day, whatever. And then do kind of the back of the envelope multiplication of how long do I need to run this experiment or how many people need to pass through this experiment for me to detect the effect size that I'm looking for. And then you stop it at the end of that time period, regardless of where the value is. Yes. Right. Okay. So based on what you know before, you're sizing the experiment and then you're sticking to that size regardless of what your p-value happens to be at any point. Then at the end, you observe the p-value and you measure your effect size. Yeah, that is what it is, right. So it's really important, though, that your experimentation framework, like I said, these are kind of subtle things. And these are things that people who are, have statistical training have had this pounded into their heads since undergrad. But most people don't have advanced statistical training, and nor should they have to think about this stuff every day. So if you're going to be democratizing these, this experimentation framework across dozens or hundreds of people and thousands of experiments, then these are the kinds of things that you want to have set up as kind of the default modes of operation of that system. Right. So your system kind of, like you said earlier, kind of has those guardrails. So that way, if somebody who is not thinking about this in the moment that they're setting up the experiment, they're less likely to go off the rails. Yeah, make it make it easy to do the right thing, basically. Mm. Um, and then the last thing that I wanted to talk about is, so you have sort of these statistical best practices based in the experimentation framework. The experimentation framework is built with the you know, the user experience and the, and the pipeline flow of the product in mind so that it can elegantly insert experiments in, at different points along that pipeline. And so last is at the end, how do you keep track? How do you organize all of this stuff so that people can retrieve the stuff that they need so that people can analyze the experiments that they're running? So some of this goes back to the idea of metrics. So we talked a little bit about metrics at the beginning and that in particular, having banks of metrics that are centrally agreed upon and shared and maintained, and that those metrics are kind of standard metrics that are always running when you do an experiment, I think is a, a piece of technology in the Airbnb system that sounds like something that they've been very thoughtful about. And they've also put a lot of time into um, what they call dimensions, but I think we might also call these cross tabs, but just for each experiment, can you drill down into different subgroups or different types of users who um, maybe were exposed to that treatment or to that control and just be able to unpack the experiment a little bit more to understand if different users are responding to say a new feature in different ways. And then the last thing coming back to 
the the thing that you pointed out earlier about open source is that the first pass, like the first way that you would get all the data out of your system in order to calculate p-values and, and cross-tabs and all these kind of stuff is with queries, like big queries on analytics databases. But they were finding that those queries, as the system got really big, those queries get big and clunky. They're likely to fail. They, you know, it's hard for them to, to fail elegantly. Like if it fails, even at the last 1%, you have to rerun the whole query. So Airbnb uh, put together a, a tool called Airflow which is a, a pipeline tool for having like workflows where a workflow is uh, the notion of multiple jobs that can be chained together sort of in a directed acyclic graph so that job A, once it finish, finishes, kicks off job B, job B kicks off job C. That would be a very mm. simple like linear workflow, but you can have multiple different jobs like A and B both need to finish and then their output goes into C and then right. C sends its so output to D and E. Yeah. So you're kind of breaking it up in, in a simple example, just being able to resume in the middle if one of the jobs fails. Uh, but in a more complex example, you're making it all uh, maybe more concurrent. And so perhaps you can even decrease the amount of time that you need to run these queries um, and, and do this processing because you can distribute the load across maybe multiple machines. And it's also just a lot easier to read, uh, like these workflows. Mm. There are some, there's some pictures of them in some of the posts, but when you look at it, you're like, oh yeah, I see how this is a little bit of a, it's a little bit of an ana analytics assembly line where I can see how each piece flows into the next piece rather than, at least for me, I find SQL, I have to sit there and think about it pretty hard before I understand what a what a query is doing. A, a pipeline or a workflow can kind of break that apart in a way that's a little bit more atomic and a little more intuitive. So Airflow is a great tool for folks who are looking for um, more sophisticated workflow management. You can check it out and it's an open source tool that's maintained by the good folks at Airbnb for this purpose. Okay, that's awesome. Um, yeah, like I, like I mentioned at the beginning, um, I was initially back in the day surprised at the um, the resources Airbnb has, and specifically, I was actually thinking about uh, UI. Like they have a JavaScript style guide and all of these other things, but it's um, it's really cool to see that their involvement in the open source community and just in terms of of publishing their research goes far beyond just basic UI stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of intricate moving pieces here and uh clearly clearly a team that's thought about a lot of these things and how to keep it all organized and functional at scale so again if you're working on a product that has a lot of experimentation aspects to it or a website where there's lots of changes that you want to test you're probably thinking about a lot of these issues anyway um and so check out those links on lineardigressions.com and and you can probably learn a lot from how Airbnb is thinking about this. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. 
And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.